Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Random History Podcast. When I last left off, I concluded my very quick series on the Thirty Years' War, and I decided that for now, I might just do a couple of different podcasts focusing on various historical figures, like a quick biography, what are their main accomplishments type deal, because I feel that that would be pretty interesting, and I feel that that type of focus would... I haven't really done a lot of great people I've done some, so I feel like it would be very fun to kind of switch gears in a sense. So today I will start with Gustavus Adolphus, also known as Gustav II Adolf, or Duskav II Adolf. And the only difference between those two is just the spelling, and he was the king of Sweden for a 21-year period, from 1611 to 1632. And he's basically the one credited for Sweden becoming a great European power, and basically leading them into their empire. Some of you probably remember Sweden became an empire of sorts in around 1611. At that point, they controlled Finland, a good chunk of um what would today be Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia area, plus some good chunk of Norway, Swedish Pomerania, and some holdings, and some other holdings near the um, Holy Roman Empire. However, they would eventually fall after the well, this Great Northern War, but for a while, they were pretty big, and they were pretty powerful. So I'm going to focus first on some early life, then some uh, reputation, some, some like, politics stuff, kind of, like, what his political strategies and stuff were, and various other things. So, Gustavus Adolphus, he was born in Stockholm, Sweden, as the oldest son of Duke Charles of the Vasta dynasty, to his sec- and, and his second wife, Christina of Holstein Gottorp. And at the time, the king of Sweden was actually Gustavus Adolphus's cousin, Sig- Sigismund. But he actually forced, he actually ruled the area from Poland, and he was forced to let go of the throne as part of a, he was forced by the duke, so Gustavus's father to let go as he was a Catholic. And during all this undergoing religious strife pre-30 years war, it was not very good for them because there's a lot of, you know, the Catholic-Protestant rivalry was still pretty strong at this point, and the people didn't really like having a Catholic king of a majority Protestant nation. And soon enough, Duke Charles ended up taking the throne as Charles IX of Sweden in 1604. And Gustav Adolf, I'm going to call him Gustav Adolf for this part, for the podcast, had a little duchy in Dalakarlia as for a while, and a, and then upon his father's death, when he was 16, and he, his father died in October of 1611, he ended up inheriting the throne, and he was able to, actually, he was declared of age, and was able to reign himself, which is probably a good thing, as some of you know, oftentimes when the king died, it would be their very young child, and you couldn't really rule, so other people really ruled for him, so he was honestly in a pretty good situation, he wasn't like, it could have been better, but it could have been a lot worse, and he actually inherited quite a few problems upon taking the throne, as there was a, there was a succession of all these dynastic disputes with his Polish cousin, who was still somewhat annoyed that he had been forced to relinquish the throne of Sweden. He was actually wanting to regain it. And in part of this big dispute, Gustavus would actually invade Livonia when he was 31, and this would begin the Polish-Swedish War. And he actually intervened on behalf of the Lutherans in Germany, who ended up actually opening their gates of the cities to him. And he actually became much more like famous throughout Europe due to his actions in the Thirty Years' War, where he led the Swedish intervention. He ended up imp- 
intervening on the anti-imperial slash Protestant force. And at this point, they were losing ground pretty heavily to the Holy Roman Empire and its Catholic allies. And he was the one responsible for really reversing this. The thing to know is that he ended up being married to Mariah Eleonora Brandenburg, who was the daughter of John Sigismund, who was the elector of Brandenburg. And yet, and while he was in Germany, he actually operated out of the Prussian city of Elbing. He would actually die in the Battle of Lutzen in 1632. And his... Death was a great loss to the Lutheran forces. And I'm going to talk a bit about his reputation and then his duty. Then his, I'm going to talk first about reputation, then a bit of his political strategy, kind of what he did in his territories. And also, like, just kind of like, what was he like as a king? Then a bit of his military commanding and how he built the Swedish military. So he, he today has a reputation of being a pretty big deal innovator. And people, there's a pretty wide consensus that there were pretty few innovators who were credited with all these very revolutionary developments in warfare. And it was these few men, one of whom is Gustavus Adolphus, one of whom is Maurice of Orange, slash Maurice of Nassau, who basically laid the foundations for what military would look like for the next two centuries. And he was considered to be a very able military commander. And what he was especially good at integrating various groups combining cavalry combining infantry and even using logistics and this earned him the title of the father of modern warfare and he was actually studied in by many future commanders such as napoleon the great of france and karl von Clausewitz. and his advancements in warfare would as i previously mentioned usher in a period of Swedish history, you know, the this, this period of swedish history where they stood as an empire and he was the only swedish monarch to be styled the great and this was decision was actually made by the Swedish est Estates of the Realm when they convened. And this is basically, so he's officially known as Gustavus Adolphus the Great, or in, I believe, what language they use in Sweden. I want to say Swedish, but I'm not certain. Gustavus Adolphus Magnus. And as I previously mentioned, he was the main figure responsible for the success of the Swedish during the Thirty Years' War and led his nation to great prestige. And a thing that he also noticed that he was very good at was the use of mobile artillery in addition to aggressive tactics where... Attack was stressed over defense, which I think is kind of nice, because remember a lot of times you'd be either pretty defensive, pretty offensive, and he also would emphasize the use of cavalry and other ways to boost mobility, that way his troops could maneuver faster. And in addition, he added a couple other innovations, and for, for example, he came up with an, with an early form of what is considered, what is known as today, combined arms. And basically the idea is when you integrate multiple combat arms in an army to achieve these mutually beneficial effects. For example, using a good example like, okay, using tanks and infantry. That way they can, the tanks can shield the infantry as they cross the trenches, while the infantry can take out those people who have the, who can take out the tank. And he would, he would actually use the idea of basically cavalry would be backed by infantry who would have cannons and they would basically protect the cavalry and kind of as they charged the enemy, they, the infantry would shout and hit that enemy as hard as they could. That way they could somewhat break them to make it easier for the cavalry to cause chaos. And then they would ret retreat within them once they, the foray was over. Thank you is that he actually followed in the steps of Maurice of, Maurice of Nassau. He would adopt a pretty much, much shallower infantry formations as noted that the area of Pike and Shot, they were pretty... They were quite dense compared to others, and his form with formations typically in the five to six ranks. He and he would also sub 
occasionally support them with some other formations. And as, and as I previously mentioned, he was known for having some unique or unique for his time up artillery, in addition to those very cumbersome and heavy guns, which people have always kind of associated with cannons. He also introduced very light mobile guns for the first time, really. And these end up grouping his batteries that would support his more linearly developed and linearly developed formations. So rather than, so think more like what you'd see almost in the Revolutionary War with those long lines of British soldiers as opposed to these super deep columns and very, not necessarily columns, but super deep squares. And this meant so that he could basically redeploy and reconfigure very rapidly. He also ended up creating what is known as the modern Swedish Navy, which was important as it helped his logistics as it was the only way he could really get troops across the water without having to cut through a lot of land. And he's considered and he is considered to be one of the greatest generals of all time by many different generals, who I think are a pretty good metric. As I feel that generals, to be honest, are probably the best for evaluating other generals just because they kind of understand really they have a good grasp of strategy and like what it means to be a general so they can be very good judges of okay, was he very good at a general or was he just good at a general from a historical perspective? And this great this people who supported this include Karl von Clausewitz, Napoleon Bonaparte, and George S. Patton. He was also very renowned for the way his troops were treated equally and his very and his very consistent purpose. As no part of his army was considered better or preferred received preferred treatment which is something not very common, as in other armies, usually the cavalry would be the elite and treated the best. Then you have the artillery and then the very lowly infantry. I did low lowly with the quotation marks. And the thing is that he also was very big on cross-training, which means it's kind of his troops were trained to be able to work with different things. For example, he trained both his infantry and men and cavalry men to use artillery, and this actually proved quite useful as his heavy cavalry were able to turn captured artillery on opponents on several occasions. For example, at the Battle of First Breitenfeld, they were able to turn captured artillery on opposing Catholic tercios. The thing is that he also taught his pikemen to shoot. So even that way, even if they were not as really accurate as his designated musketeers, they could still keep them. They could still keep their muskets firing. The thing to notice that. Back then, rather than the more, I would say, 1700 style of warfare where people would have most, would usually traditionally use guns, with the exception of cavalry, sometimes using weapons, bladed weapons, they would fight in something known as a pike and, pike and musketeer format, or, or a pike and gun format. Essentially, you got pikemen and gunmen. The pikemen kind of serve as the box, almost. It's hard to describe, to be honest, but it, it, I'd recommend you look it up. But basically, they would mix pikemen and, and muskets at this point, as muskets were good, but they were not as good as they would become. And having pikemen was useful for preventing cavalry charges and just engaging in melee combat. However, think that there has been some challenge to his reputation by more recent historians. Some have said that he he did not really create these new stuff, and that he would a lot of things that he did were really just improvements on existing systems. In addition, some also say that there's some fake legends about him and that many of his innovations were actually created by his staff. So there is some debate over whether or not he was a great, as great military commander as people say, but he was definitely a pretty good one. So I focus on his, not as um, on his reputation throughout history. I'm going to focus more on his, how he behaved. The thing to know is that Gustavus Adolphus was actually 
pretty progressive in terms of its treating his conquered territories. Especially in Estonia, he was he actually did quite a few things. He opened a school, he created a university, and he also encouraged greater autonomy for peasants. I think that he actually the period of Swedish rule over Estonia is has been idealized in Swedish folklore as the good in Estonian folklore. Sorry, as the good old Swedish times. So he was definitely a pretty decent leader. He wasn't just one of those leaders who's only focused with the war. There are definitely some leaders, I'd say, like King Richard Lionheart, who really didn't really focus on the people as much sometimes because they died before they could. But he was definitely was a pretty good mixture of war of commander and king. And thanks to knows that Gustavus Adolphus actually fought quite a few wars. As when he inherited the throne from his father, he inherited those three three separate wars. One against Denmark-Norway, which had actually attacked Sweden pretty a little bit earlier. One against Russia. This was because Sweden tried to take advantage of the Russian period known as the Time of Troubles, which is just this, basically this period of anarchy and essentially lawlessness and famine. They tried to, base, they tried to use that. And against Polish-Lithuania, because Charles, his father of Gustavus, had deposed his nephew, who's Gustavus's, I believe, yep, cousin. And this nothing that was that the war against Denmark Norway was not very good, essentially, as eh, why they didn't really lose any territory, they were forced to pay a pay a pretty heavy indemnity to Denmark Norway through the Treaty of Knarred. Thank you that during the war Gustavus let his soldiers plunder towns and villages. And due to and he act in a specific province known as Scania, which is the southernmost tip of essentially Sweden, his troops destroyed many Scanian parishes, and as a result of this, the people of Scania had he has a very bad reputation there, and he destroyed many different towns. And I think that was that in, in his conflicts against Russia, he ended up with a treaty of Stolbovo, which was actually quite good for him, as he was able to escape exclude the Russians, really, from the Baltic Sea, and they gained several different important provinces, including fortresses. They also got indemnities, and they got the returns of all certain gains, and they got to keep a significant number of their spoils of war. And then, of course, the final war against Poland ended in something known as the Truth of Outmark, which ended up giving Sweden the large province of Livonia, which would soon, which would become a dominion of the empire for quite a bit of time, and after this, this would be able. He was able. He was free to send his forces into in, intervention in the Thirty Years' War, where they already had established a bridgehead due to their siege of Stralsund. Then was that uh, he was very. Imp- he, he was, one of his main interventions was in Blend of uh, it was in Brandenburg. As this, as this was a pretty big electorate, which, as I mentioned, were responsible for choosing the king, so they were a very big deal, politically speaking. And this was basically divided by a quarrel between the Protestant and Catholic parties. And Gustavus was able to consolidate the Protestant pos- positions. And then turns out that after an, is- after an issue where, essentially, his troops... And de- his troops plunder endangered the system of armies really feeding themselves. They end up, they ended up, 
prohibiting his troops from looting throughout the war, and he would continue on to do various things throughout the war. And really, I'm not going to focus too much on this. I already covered his his stuff in throughout the Thirty Years' War in my last podcast series. Then shows that there were reports. There were alleged reports of him entering the battle without wearing any armor, saying that basically God is my armor. However, it's probably more likely that he actually just wore a padded cuirass, which is kind of this type of armor you would wear over the top over your torso. I think Tom talk a little bit about his death now. He ended up dying at the Battle of Lutzen when he was separated from his troops while covering, while leading a cavalry charge. And at this point, he was gunned down. And this ended up, his death ended up causing some issues for the both the Swedish military and the Protestant causes. His death definitely weaken the ability of the Swedish to keep waging war just due to the morale and to the lack of the loss of one of their best leaders and it weakened the Protestant cause as well they lost an important leader as well and think to know is that after his death the crown of Sweden would continue to be passed down to just various passed down throughout the Vassal family and think to know is that his younger brother of Gustavus had died before him, so it ended up being passed down to his daughter, and she would eventually take the throne. And I'm going to talk about a little bit of legacy, in addition to his reputation, so, and how he's kind of known. Then I'm going to conclude it real quick. So Gustavus Adolphus, he's widely commemorated by Protestants as the main defender of their cause during the Thirty Years' War, as he was pretty much one of the main Protestant fighters. And as a result of this, there's a lot of different religious organizations and stuff named after him, and a lot of little churches and foundations. And of course, he's also a symbol of Swedish pride. So he's, there were a lot of different city squares named after him in various Swedish cities, like Stockholm. And of course, this is because he's what he led them to empire, in essence. And he basically won them their power. And I think it turns out they also celebrate... Something known as Gustavus Adolphus Day on the day of his the day he died at Lutzen. And each year on both Sweden and Finland, they actually eat something known as a Gustavus Adolphus pastry pastry, which is traditionally which varies a lot, but it's like a little usually a basically it's a pastry that has a portrait of the king on the top of it. And there's also a college in Minnesota named for him, which is kind of cool. And there's just a couple of other organizations throughout named after him, but other than that, that's pretty much it, so I'm going to talk about it a little quick. So, in to summarize, King Gustavus Adolphus, or Gustav Adolf II, Gustav II Adolphus of Sweden, was a Swedish man who ascended to the throne after his father actually deposed Gustavus's cousin, and he... And after, despite inheriting three wars, he was able to come out on top of two of them and sustain very little territorial losses in the other, and he was renowned for his military command especially, but was also a pretty good leader. Thanks for listening, folks. This was the Random History Podcast.